Hi, and welcome to NANCAST. I'm Jill, your host. The National Association of Neonatal Nurses is dedicated to improving outcomes for premature babies and their families. Aware of the growing amount of research concerning racial and other health disparities for premature infants, NAN is dedicated to intentionally and thoughtfully include health and racial equity as an organizational strategic pillar. Today's episode digs deeper into the data and research about health equity in the NICU and discusses the related work underway in our neonatal nursing community. As nurses, it's important to educate ourselves on the topic of health equity. Although we may have not experienced health inequities personally, research confirms that they exist and the need to improve related outcomes. I encourage all NANCAST listeners to stay tuned to the end of this episode for a list of supplemental research and reading on this important topic. How can we, as NICU nurses, ensure health equity in our units and improve outcomes? One NICU nurse, Shelley Frisco, is doing just that. She is leading health equity initiatives in her unit, as well as providing a voice for maternal health equity as a member of the National Perinatal Association and serving on AWAN's Educational Advisory Committee. It is my pleasure to welcome Shelley to discuss these urgent health care issues and her advocacy for these vulnerable moms and babies. Let's get right into it. Hi, Shelley. Thank you so much for joining us today. So to solve a complex problem like maternal morbidity and mortality, we must better understand why mothers, especially those of color, are dying at higher rates. Can you talk to us about the research and what the data is showing on this? Yes. Thank you so much, Jill. It's wonderful to be here with you and with Nan. And much thanks to Nan and to you for providing a forum for this really critically urgent health issue in our nation. We know from the data, we know from the statistics uh, that African-American women are two to three times as likely to die during pregnancy, during childbirth and postpartum as white women. Uh, Native American and Indian, uh, American Indian women also have a high morbidity and mortality rate twice as likely as white women. What uh, the plethora of data is showing is that the root causes of these awful health disparities are systemic implicit and explicit biases, systemic racism. We know that race is a social construct. It's not a biological construct. So the evidence with these significant perinatal disparities point to systemic racism within the healthcare system, unfortunately, and among healthcare providers. Given this critical data and evidence of the health disparities that you mentioned, what is being done on a local or national level to address this? Along with these, uh, these jarring statistics, there is much that is being done to address it on a national level. Within our government, there has been much attention given to it. I am in the state of California, and California passed a law in 2019 called the Dignity and Pre- Dignity and Pregnancy Implicit Bias Act that man- <clears throat> excuse me mandated uh, implicit bias training and health equity training in the perinatal setting for all perinatal health care providers. I'm very proud to say that our my own hospital has that training for all of our maternity and neonatal staff. I have completed that training. It is outstanding. It is superbly done uh, and really, um, really is able to talk about such a jarring uh, emotional and powerful issue in an objective format in a way that teaches and educates 
uh, without alienating in a way that really inspires uh, all healthcare providers and the call to action to advocate to improve this issue and to eliminate it. There are many things being done on the national level. Uh, there's recent legislation and the Congress that has passed to devote to improving health equity for uh, American women, specifically American mothers of color, uh, increasing the support that we can give for breastfeeding and lactation, because we also know that there are disparities between African-American mothers and white mothers when it comes to breastfeeding, that African-American women are less likely to breastfeed, and the reasons for that are structural, and they are also based on systemic inequities lack of access, especially within black communities, to lactation, to the resources that support breastfeeding. And then, of course, it goes beyond to a much broader societal issue in terms of many mothers, especially if they are low socioeconomic status and low income, they've got to go back to work. They don't have the support to pump at work. So then, sadly, breastfeeding, being able to provide the best nutrition for your baby has, it's, it's become a class income issue. And unfortunately, class and income disparities are strongly correlated with racial disparities. So there are many um, things that are positive things that are being done. Our reputable professional organizations such as AWAN and NAN, ACOG, Nurse Practitioners for Women's Health, American College of Nurse Midwives, and many, many others, National Perinatal Association, they have all uh, answered the clarion call to take the mantle of leadership on this urgent, critical, moral health care issue and use their professional organizations and the bully pulpits that they have to draw attention to it for all health care providers to educate, to advocate, and to lead. So uh, I am so thankful for all of these organizations and the many others out there. There is much that is being done. At the, on the national level, uh, at the local level, at the institutional level that can be done. I'm very proud that my hospital uh, some time ago, within the last couple of years, uh, formed their own perinatal equity, diversity, and inclusion committee, which I am proud to be a part of. And also uh, an attending neonatologist formed uh, a group called the, the Anti-Racist Neonatal Care Committee, which I'm also proud to be a part of. And this particular attending neonatologist um, really deserves much of the credit for the work that neonatal health equity has been doing because he is chair of the Neonatal Quality Council. And so he keeps track of all of our dashboards and all of our outcomes. Um, and he specifically, his goal is to realize health equity through data. So he's tracking What's our percentage of breastfeeding for our African-American babies uh, versus our other babies? And we see that disparity right there, the disparities that are out there on the national level, the local level, so we're seeing it at the institutional level. And so really, um, you know, that is central, is looking at what is the data that we have. So these statistics are mirroring the data that is out there nationally. So now we know we have a problem. And there's not just one thing. There are many things we can do to address it. We can educate, mandate education on implicit bias training, which our own institution has done. Implement evidence-based practices that are key, that are in the literature. It's 
key to improving perinatal and neonatal outcomes. And then on the larger national societal level, uh, really reforming our healthcare system to offer more community-based models of care for pregnant women, offer pregnant women more choice and autonomy, actually listen to them, allow them to be partners in this process. And unfortunately, you know, this, this goes and speaks to the nature of the medicalization of pregnancy in our healthcare system and really bringing, putting patients at the center of their care. Um, so these are a few of the things that really can be done to ameliorate and to improve this issue. I really like the concept of incorporating equity in your quality, your quality improvement, and looking into not just what are our breastfeeding rates on our unit, but in including equity and inclusion in, in, in doing so. So I know you're a part of that group. Um, can you explain how you're taking more of a QI approach to measuring your clinical performance, but also identify any, identifying any inequities that are happening? Um, and then what steps are you guys doing to implement change on your unit? So when you gather this data, can you give some examples of what you're doing to improve that on your unit? Definitely. So um, our hospital is a part of the California Perinatal Quality Care Collaborative, CPQCC. We are also a part of the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative. Uh, so we have to submit certain data to look as to whether are we meeting local benchmarks with other CPQCC institutions, are we above, are we below. So. I wanted to say, give a shout out to CPQCC and CMQCC in that they have really taken the um, mantle of leadership to guide and to lead hospitals to really realize improved maternal and neonatal outcomes. And they've also been on the forefront speaking out about health equity. So we participate in CPQCC and our chair of our quality council uh, is, has been tracking data, looking at neonatal morbidity and mortality by race in our unit. And prior to him doing this, this had never been done. And so he has expanded it to look at breastfeeding equity, looking at our breastfeeding statistics, looking at our statistics, because we also do know uh, from the national literature that uh, African-American babies are twice as likely to die in the first 28 days of life as white babies. And we look at necrotizing enterocolitis. The disparities are just so they're, they are as plain as day. Where I mean, they're included in tools. Yes. What is your baby's race? And you get yes. more points or higher risk for depending on your race. So that's yes. a known. Right. So you're probably referring to uh, Sheila Gephardt's yeah, risk, measure, risk measurement for NEC. Yes, yep. and a, a phenomenal tool that she created that uh, I have shared with uh, my own unit. Um, and so just that alone, just the, the disparities and neck morbidity and mortality for African-American and Hispanic infants. Uh, and then, you know, we can look at, you know, what are some of the causes related to that? Okay, so we know that African-American infants uh, and Hispanic infants, unfortunately, are less likely to receive human milk in the NICU. So all of these things uh, are tied together. And so with looking at Tracking this data and looking at, you know, how these statistics are measuring up, 
what I could say we have done in our unit is it's been interprofessional between medicine, nursing, lactation consulting, social work, discharge planning, the EDI committees, and it has to be advanced practice nursing. It has to be to talk about what are the ways that we can uh, improve these issues for our patient population. How can we give better care than we have been giving? And one, it just starts with educating, educating and awareness. The dignity implicit bias uh, childbirth trainings and perinatal care, that's one step. Now, yes, that's primarily focusing on the perinatal setting. However, perinatal and neonatal are intertwined. So the same strategies mentioned in that training to address implicit and explicit bias in healthcare, you can transfer that to the NICU setting easily because it's it's the same issue. So that's one. Uh, yes, you know, there are going to be certain individuals who really are not excited to hear about this, who really may not want to be educated on it. However, there are a lot of individuals out there who didn't even know that these were problems on this level. And they're honestly open to actually hearing more about it and being educated about it because they weren't even aware that this was a crisis. And exactly. And including it in your quality improvement and having equity added to that, that's right there. That's the data from your unit and issues that you're facing in your unit daily. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, just let's just take it within the neonatal setting. It's NICU nurses. What do we know? We know that human milk is the gold standard of nutrition. So with that knowledge of looking at, wow, why is it that babies of color are less likely to receive human milk? Why is it that uh, it seems like African-American mothers are not as likely to breastfeed? Wow, well, here's the information. Here's the data. Here's the history. Here's the culture behind that. And really, well, what can we do? Wow, you know, we cannot assume that because this is an African-American mother, she's probably going to want a formula feed. We can, we can start with assumptions like that. And we can promote evidence-based practice and neonatal care for every single baby and every single NICU parent. Because that's the key, is that evidence-based data to improve outcomes that's universal. So you had mentioned earlier how each perinatal issue is going to affect our our babies that we care for. Can you discuss some of the data that suggests the significant issues in the perinatal period and how they manifest into any kind of adverse neonatal outcomes that we're seeing on our units? Certainly. And Jill, thank you for this question because it's right on topic. So we do know that race is strongly correlated with prematurity. And we also know that African-American mothers are twice as likely to deliver prematurely than white uh, mothers. Uh, We also know that when African-American mothers do deliver prematurely, their babies are more likely to be considered very low birth weight. There has been evidence in the literature uh, that has shown that the levels of systemic inflammatory markers, specifically interleukin-4 and interleukin-6, are higher in black mothers. Uh, and those markers have been strongly correlated with premature birth. Wow. Yes. So, you know, this speaks to a much broader issue in which uh, we can get into a concept called weathering. That is a term that was created, oh, maybe two or three decades ago by a leading African-American uh, professor and researcher. Basically, she 
her hypothesis of research was specifically looking at, okay, so we've got a class issue. Why are we seeing well-educated, professional black women not having significantly better perinatal outcomes than poor black women? And so that is how that concept got coined, weathering. And weathering refers to a lifetime exposure of toxic stress, and specifically for black women from racial discrimination um, and experiences with it, and what that does, sadly, to the body over time in terms of wear and tear and eventually how it affects reproductive health outcomes. And toxic stress is something that we talk about a lot. The parents, a lot of parents experience in the NICU. And then as, as a black woman to have that toxic stress elevated to a different level. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And it, you know, we have very high profile examples. And that's why we can see that this issue is irrespective of insurance status, of class, of uh, educational level. Uh, when we've got high profile examples like Serena Williams, not being heard, being second guessed when she is trying to advocate for what she knows best about her, uh, her body. Again, she is being subjected to the same treatment that uh, a plethora of black women have said is their number one complaint, not being heard, not being listened to, not being respected in the healthcare setting, specifically in the perinatal setting. And this has monumental consequences because many black women and other women of color have said that because of their experience of discrimination within the healthcare setting and with healthcare providers, that many will stay away from the clinic, from going to get those checkups, going to get those appointments, going to get that follow-up because it's a hindrance. So what they sense and what they are perceiving as being disrespected, as being discriminated against, of not being listened to or not being heard, makes them least likely to want to encounter healthcare providers. And then, of course, what's that going to do? So they're not going to get the monitoring that they need, the follow-up they need. And so, yes, that's going to transverse into highly likely adverse neonatal outcomes. So these, these issues have long been researched and they, have, they are very, very well documented. So it's really, really crucial that there just be an understanding um, within the perinatal community of what many women of color experience. Uh, that, and actually, Awan did an outstanding tool based on SBAR. And it specifically uh, is an awesome tool. I've shared it with my perinatal EDI at my hospital. It specifically goes through how a healthcare provider can look at a patient of color and really take into the fact that they have most likely experienced bias and discrimination. They are most likely coming in having experienced that. And that needs to be incorporated, included in our approach and how we care for them just that inherent knowledge and understanding. So I want to ask, but I don't know if there's an answer. So I don't want to ask you if there's no <laughs> answer. But is there any way or, or like, would you be able to talk about any ways that we could call attention to this and, and communicate better? Or is that not something that we know we can effectively do? Or we don't, or we're still looking into that? I wish that I could give 
people advice on on what to do. That's but there isn't because sure. it's all everybody's unconscious bias. Sure. And it's not. This is not a situation where uh, the problems are too great. This can never be fixed. People are always going to have implicit and explicit biases. Yes, we all have implicit biases. All of us. Uh, Everybody has subconscious implicit biases from the way that we're socialized, from the nature of the environment that we are in, that perhaps we grew up in, that we socialize in, that we work in. It's important to recognize that. It is so important, and I believe that my health system has done an outstanding job of educating everybody on what are microaggressions. A lot of people are not, are not aware of that. Um, how do we have these difficult conversations in a way that leaves people feeling that they can be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem anymore? How do we have these conversations in a way that does not make certain providers feel a sense of uh, guilt and personal shame for something that, no, they're not personally responsible for. This is a, we're talking about a healthcare system. We're talking about the history of American healthcare. It did not start today. These issues have been here since the beginning of, of the American healthcare system and all of, you know, everything that goes along with that. And so, Knowledge is power. Educating is empowering. Um, I'm really proud that leaders from certain attending physicians to my own nursing leadership to many in our executive hospital leadership, and that's critical, that they have stepped up and they are advocating on this issue. It's really crucial to send a message to our frontline employees that, yes, the leadership cares about this. Now, are there going to be some who are going to say, oh, they're just doing it because it's, it's politically correct. And yeah, if you're in leadership, of course you're going to be for this. Okay, true. However, I think we can tell the difference between those who really, really have a heart for this and are dedicated to it and are putting their money where their mouth is and exactly. those who are just giving lip service because, well, I'm in leadership, so of course I got to go along with this. Exactly. And then how do you translate that to the communities? How do you translate to the community members, to the moms, and, you know, that we hear you, and, you know, we're working on this. How, how, do, how, does, how do you do that? Excellent question. So this is a, a, a very important role that healthcare institutions and organizations have in being able to form those community alliances. The issues that you and I are talking about, Jill, They're not going to be improved without community-based support, without healthcare institutions reaching out and getting those reputable community organizations that are providing that care and establishing that rapport on the ground with communities of color. It's crucial to have that partnership. So if we want to talk about organizations like Mocha Moms, which specifically uh, is a breastfeeding lactation support group for black women to encourage and and support breastfeeding and provide lactation support for black women. Uh, La Leche League is the equivalent for Hispanic, for Latina women. Uh, You know, and then we've got many of our our national organizations, AWAN and NAN, uh, Nurse Practitioners Women's Health, so forth working with midwives, working with full-spectrum doulas, lactation consultants. It's really 
it's critical to incorporate all of these models of care, of community care and community-based support, uh, really forever going to make inroads on this issue. Exactly. They need to know that we're serious about change and we're passionate about it. And we understand and we want... That we, yeah, that we are serious about really just providing all women with the equitable care that they deserve, Provide, listening to them, showing them through our words and our actions that we hear you, we value you, we are not overlooking you, we're not oversimplifying you, we're not ignoring you. We are addressing, yes, that these are your needs. And that's really what it comes down to is really asking this prospective parent, what do you need from us? in order to give you the the care that you need. And what are your thoughts on increasing diversity amongst the workforce? So including diversity, uh, you know, maybe have women of color as lactation consultants, nurses, doctors, anybody that's working in the healthcare environment. What what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that would help improve some of these um, relationships and help form better, strong communal relationships? Absolutely, 100%. Thank you for going into that because that has been studied, it has been documented, it has been researched. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has uh, really, really led on this issue. Uh, They came out with a couple of reports. One was on the future of nursing. I think their latest report came out this year, looking at the nursing healthcare workforce and how critical it it is right now to diversify the healthcare provider workforce to meet the needs of an increasingly ethnic minority uh, racial population. Uh, If we look at the population as it currently is now, it's more diverse ethnically than it's ever been. And those numbers are only going to continue to increase. And so when we look at the serious, serious issues that we have right now with providing equitable care for women of color and babies of color, The urgency is right now to uh, increase whatever support that we can give to encourage underrepresented minorities to enter into the healthcare professions, because this has been proven. It has been proven that many uh, patients of color, they feel a sense of trust. They feel a sense of rapport with providers that share their cultural background. It's been proven. And so, exactly. And yeah. we've heard it. We've heard yes. patients say that to us. Yes. Flat out. Right. No, absolutely. And so org- healthcare organizations uh, can do their part by uh, doing their best to hire uh, the best and brightest talent and encourage diversity among the ranks, definitely with lactation consulting. And that's an area that my own institution is addressing. However, um, it has We've sort of been struggling with it because specifically we are doing our best to hire uh, a lactation consultant of color. Um, And that's something that we are trying to do just on our end. We have a couple and they are phenomenal. Uh, However, you know, with looking at the breastfeeding disparities, we know that having um, an ethnic minority lactation consultant would just do a world of symbolic good uh, for many of our patients who just automatically do not trust healthcare providers. So that is crucial. And along with that, it's the mentoring, it's the training, it is giving 
underrepresented minorities a safe space within these traditional dominated institutions with people who do not look like them. So it's, it's encouraging nursing and medicine for uh, students of color and providing a pathway, providing the resources, providing the mentoring, the role models to do this. Because let's face it, uh, when you see somebody who looks like you, it makes you feel that, wow, I can do this. But when, when most of the people do not look like you in a field that is already very prestigious, let's say such as medicine, it can be a hindrance on one's self-esteem and one's ability to think I can do that too when I hardly see anybody who looks like me doing it. So, you know, representation is it's powerful, it's key. And it's, uh, it's also addressing, sadly, uh, because when we're going to talk about racism in the patient experience, we have got to address racism in the professional work environment experience. So many nurses and physicians of color uh, will tell you that they have personally experienced racial bias from their colleagues, not just from patients who are racist, but from their colleagues. So this issue goes in line with the perinatal and neonatal health care disparities we're talking about because Okay, we've got biases against certain patients, and then we've got providers of color explicitly talking about biases they're experiencing from their very own colleagues, uh, implicit biases to suggest that they don't have what it takes to be there or that they don't belong there. And so that is an urgent issue that has exactly. got There's to be no addressed. limit. Right, right, right. Right. It is it is an urgent issue. And, you know, we can't fix one without the other. So, you know, if we've got issues with implicit implicit biases that providers of color are experiencing, then we're not going to fix the bias issues with patients. No. Right. Those things go hand in hand. What seems to be coming um, up to the forefront now, along with the leading causes of mortality of pregnant women and through the first year postpartum, we're seeing homicide come up as a leading cause of death. Can you expand more on that and talk more about that as well? Yes. Thank you so much, Jill, for bringing this up. This is a devastating and heartbreaking issue that really speaks to so many levels that are involved. The American College of of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and their journal, Obstetrics and Gynecology, not that long ago, published a report looking at deaths by homicide among pregnant women in the United States. And they included the first year after giving birth or the first year postpartum. And what they found in their report was that homicide is a leading cause of death for pregnant women in the United States uh, alongside uh, hypertensive disorders, postpartum hemorrhage, and stroke. So This issue speaks to so many very complex societal, cultural, systemic issues uh, and levels. It is complex. It's multifaceted. But just because it's complex and multifaceted and very emotional and raw does not mean that we as healthcare providers should shy away from it. That, yes, it's easier to focus on postpartum hemorrhage and hypertensive disorders and preeclampsia. But then when we get into domestic violence and homicide, it's like a whole, it's like opening a Pandora's box. And it, 
it is okay to say that many healthcare providers are not comfortable with that issue. Many do not have the training. We do not have the training specifically to be comfortable talking about it, let alone uh, asking the questions that need to be asked of our pregnant patients and postpartum patients really to ensure their safety. So this is something that really, really, I'm very proud that ACOG is taking uh, a stand on and addressing it in the public setting to educate uh, providers. It's really crucial that in the inpatient perinatal setting that perinatal nurses really have the training that they need to ask the questions that need to be asked when probing for domestic violence, to be comfortable with that, to be comfortable with doing so in a way that is going to elicit this patient trusting them and opening up to them and not clamming up in fear uh, because we cannot really afford to not give attention to this issue. And one specific thing that has been recommended are uh, the perinatal statistics on the causes of death, that those death certificates need to include a box for pregnancy when we're, we are listing a pregnant woman who has died. That is crucial to being able to really track how many pregnant women, childbearing women, uh, are dying from domestic violence. I think you brought up a great point of having a nurse be able to be comfortable talking about this with their moms. Um, I know a lot of NICU nurse would think, okay, social work can handle this. But as NICU nurses, we spend so much time with these postpartum moms on the unit. And like, that's a great way to, in a time to build relationships, build that rapport. Um, and hopefully they will speak up. I think a lot of times, like you said, we tend to focus on hypertension, hemorrhage, because that's something that happens in our four walls. In, in the hospital, but we don't know what their lives are like outside those four walls. So, you know, I do think that it's important that we discuss this and people are aware of that as something that we need to always keep in our mind when we're talking to our parents. Absolutely. And, you know, what you said is right on the mark, Jill, because as a NICU nurse, uh, I, in my 21 years as a NICU nurse, I've definitely seen patients over the years who, patients, families who, as nurses, we will talk and we've got our suspicions that maybe there's something not quite right, but we can't put a finger on it. Um, however, the vibe that we're getting is some sort of an emotional, psychological control. No, we don't see a bruise. We don't see a mark. But what we're seeing is an interaction that speaks to, well, what are the forms of abuse? Psychological, verbal, emotional, physical, financial. Um, and so it's, you know, it, it's that sort of phenomenon. Uh, there is an outstanding perinatal educator and clinical nurse specialist who gave a talk uh, several months ago, and she used to be a labor and delivery nurse, and she gave an excellent scenario of, this is a real-life patient story, of having a patient come in to the labor and delivery unit for a checkup, and she mentioned that it was very hot outside and the patient was covered from head to toe and like a warm, thick sweater, and she was with her support person. The support person was doing all the talking, even though the nurse was speaking directly to the patient and asking her questions, but her support person was doing all the answering. And so she just brilliantly 
thought of something on the spot to be able to get this mother of this woman alone. And she just called for a colleague. She's like, oh, you know what? Can you take this dad and just show him this? And that was how she was able to get this mother Quick alone. Thinking Quick thinking after yes. a red flag. <laughs> oh, yes. Just brilliant. And she had this mother lift her sweater, lift the sleeves, and she saw bruises everywhere. So I will never forget that story because that nurse saved that mother's life. Yep. And sometimes I just think to myself, wow, I've never been in a position like that, but I would pray that I would be able to just brilliantly think of something when realizing what the stakes are, that this is a matter of life and death. And it's on now it's on our radar. Now right. it's something that we know we have to focus on and think about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it you know, it, it's imperative. And, and that's why uh, the legislation that's out there to extend Medicaid to cover not just 60 days postpartum, which is hopefully inadequate, but the entire year postpartum is crucial. How many women, especially under-resourced, low-income uh, low, uh, women, are going to get to that postpartum visit? And it's wonderful that ACOG has revisited the whole first, first postpartum visit in six weeks. No, some women need to be seen sooner, especially if they've had preeclampsia, especially if they've had other complications of pregnancy. They, they shouldn't be waiting until six weeks. They need to be no. seen maybe two, three weeks, depending on what's going on. Uh, so that's one thing, extending that Medicaid coverage uh, to cover all women so that you know they're more likely to, at least to be seen and get those checkups. It's crucial. So on a more positive note, can you leave us with some um, thoughtful, empowering words for us to be able to help build a better maternal health outcomes for our moms and hopefully better outcomes for our babies in the future? Yes. Thank you so much, Jill, for asking this question. It is important to note that with the very, very heavy topics we've discussing, nurses. Uh, I believe for the 21st year in a row, have been nationally rated by the Gallup poll as the most trusted professionals, registered nurses. The moral authority, the trust of the public, the power that nurses have is, it's on a level that's even higher than any other provider on the team, including physicians. So we have so much within us to be able to, and we already have, our advanced practice nurses, our certified nurse midwives, our neonatal nurse practitioners, our women's health nurse practitioners have been at the forefront improving maternal and neonatal outcomes. And as bedside nurses, really, we have so much power within us because we are the most trusted professionals on the healthcare team. And that is an honor. That is something we have earned. And we have the power to use that mantle that we have been given to really, really affect change and to improve these issues. And we can because we know that people, the public, trust nurses and will listen to nurses. Thank you, Shelly, so much. I feel very empowered. And I think you're right. The time is now. We as nurses should go forth, make change. I hope everybody feels as empowered as I do from what Shelly told us. Um, because we do have the power to change maternal outcomes, um, one nurse at a time. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Jill.
For a list of the supplemental research and reading we spoke of on this podcast, please check out Nan's website. Make sure you never miss an episode of NANCAST by subscribing now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks for your support and letting us into your ears. Have a great day.